what are we, what are we, what are we getting done here? It was a question. And, and why are they asking that question? Well, because they'd had this contention going with Jesus following an age-old pattern. And by the way, the pattern is still used today because it still works. You want to know what the pattern is? Welcome to another edition of Study Verse by Verse with the teaching of Pastor Leighton Sheely from Church of the Highlands in San Bruno. And if you are with us on Friday for the broadcast, that's right where we left off and we'll have the answer to that question in just a moment. If you'd like to know more about us, well, just go to the website for Church of the Highlands at highlands.us. That's highlands.us. You can listen to the past broadcasts in this lengthy series in the book of John. When you go there, just click on the messages link on the homepage. That's highlands.us. This is the pattern. If you want to eliminate an opponent or reduce an opponent, whether that opponent is political or pastor or a business leader, you follow this process. Step one, you find some corruption in their life. And then you use the threat of exposure to either control and manipulate them or to eliminate them. Then if you can't find some corruption in their life, you try to create some corruption in their life. You try to lure them into some kind of a compromising condition. And then if you're not successful at that, then you just spread rumors and lies that, of some compromise or some corruption in their life, and you keep spreading them. As the propaganda minister for Adolf Hitler said, if you tell a lie often enough, people will sooner or later believe it. And people haven't changed. And then, if that's unsuccessful, the fourth step is to assassinate the opponent. Now, ideally speaking, you'd want it to look like an accident. But if you can't make it look like an accident, then you're quite overt about eliminating the opposition. Now, notice that they'd already been active in the first three of these steps. They'd already been looking for some kind of corruption in Jesus' life, and guess what? They couldn't find any. And by the way, somebody after the 830 service brought up a newspaper and on the front cover, local newspaper, was two examples of what I just told you about. So they couldn't find any corruption in Jesus' life, so they, they tried to lure him into saying something they could use against him. Remember those questions that they asked him? They weren't really asking the questions to get the answer. They were trying to get him to say something that would compromise his position, that he didn't really believe in the law of Moses or that he didn't believe in paying taxes to Caesar in Rome or something they could use against him, but Jesus was too smart for them. So they were spreading rumors about him. Oh, he's illegitimate. Oh, he's demon-possessed. And they were trying to negate his influence, but his influence just kept growing because they couldn't capture him, they couldn't... They couldn't uh, undermine him, and he kept performing these miracles, and they acknowledged that he performed miracles. And so, at this point then, guess what the fourth step is? And they ask the question, what are we accomplishing? What are we accomplishing? This miracle that had happened in Bethany had forced their hand. If Jesus continued unchecked, then more and more people were going to follow him, and so they called in the Sanhedrin to deal with the situation. Now, the Sanhedrin... They wanted to protect the status quo, and Jesus threatened the status quo. You see, for the Sanhedrin, uh, ministry was simply a means of gaining personal power, prestige, and wealth. Religion was a business, and Jesus was a threat to that. They weren't concerned about God being in his place. They were concerned about losing their place. They put themselves first. 
The one thing that they always aimed at was the retention of their political and social power and prestige. They feared that if Jesus gained a, a following, that it might raise a disturbance. And if, if, they, if he raised a disturbance, then it would get the attention of Rome. And Rome was normally tolerant, but it could not afford civil disorder. And it would come in with a very firm hand. And the Sadducees were concerned they would be dismissed from their position in society. They would lose their position. In fact, they might even lose the nation. It never even occurred to them to ask the question whether or not Jesus was right or wrong. What they were asking the question was, how is this going to affect us, our ease, our comfort? You know, it's possible for people to put their own career, their own wealth, their own prestige above and before the will of God. And we look back at them and we say, what terrible people these people were. And yet many of us are guilty of the very same thing. We put our job first, we put our wealth, our prestige, our safety, our security, our comfort. When something is wrong, we keep our mouth shut because we're afraid we'll lose our jobs. Sometimes we do the same thing that, they, that they're guilty of. Well, Caiaphas was the high priest that year. He was appointed high priest in A.D. 18 by the Roman prefect Valerius Gratus and deposed in 36 A.D. He was the son-in-law of Annas, who served as high priest between 6 A.D. and 15 A.D. And uh, theoretically, a priest was supposed to serve for life, but the position had become so heavily politicized that Roman, uh, Romans would frequently remove high priests that weren't cooperating with them. And Caiaphas' tenure was actually one of the longest of any high priest in the first century, which is a testimony to his political acumen and conniving and opportunistic uh, nature. Now, his first words were, you know nothing at all. And uh, the, that was alleged to be typical of Sadducees. Josephus said that the behavior of Sadducees to one another is rather rude. And what he was saying is, you are brainless, witless creatures. You're stupid. Here, let me help you. There was this arrogant, domineering attitude from Caiaphas, exactly as in character. And so he proposed something that was radical, it was ruthless, and it was in keeping with his character. His proposal was death by assassination. He said it's expedient that one man die for the people not, and that the whole nation not perish. And so what he did is he presented them with an either-or dilemma, two extreme alternatives. He said, either Jesus dies or the nation dies. So which is it? Now, by the way, this is an example of dramatic irony. You know, sometimes in a, a play or a television program or a movie, a character says something that they really don't realize the full significance of, and that's later ex- exposed. And in 70 A.D., The nation of Israel and the temple was besieged by the Romans and left in ruins. How different things might have been if they had received Jesus Christ as their Messiah. So the very thing that they did in order to protect or save their nation actually destroyed it. Now this is the irony. Dramatic irony. The destruction of the temple took place in what year? 70 A.D. When was this gospel written? Probably between 80 and 100 A.D. The gospel was written after the events. The people who read this would connect the dots. 
The very thing that they thought they were doing to save the nation was actually condemning it. Now, there's a footnote that is put in here by the author that Caiaphas didn't say this on his own initiative. And he's not suggesting that Caiaphas was a puppet, but, but the words that Caiaphas spoke, God put an additional meaning on, a much more significant meaning to. Caiaphas said that Jesus would die for the nation, hyper to ethnos, and it's sacrificial language that's associated with ransom. So both Caiaphas and the author understand that Jesus' death is to be substitutionary, that Jesus dies or the nation dies. But Caiaphas is thinking in political terms, and the author is inviting us to think in terms of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world that required him to die. Caiaphas was a charlatan. He was a wolf fleecing the sheep, and yet in this moment he was inspired to say something that was prophetic. And it's important for us to understand that God can use Caiaphas. God can use a donkey. God can use a professor, a neighbor, some other voice. We shouldn't think that God can only speak through some spirit-filled believer because God can speak through anyone. By the way, if you ever hear a donkey speak, you should listen. J. Vernon McGee said, like Balaam in the Old Testament, Caiaphas could utter a true prophecy. And his death was not only for the nation, but for those who were scattered abroad. And the Jewish mind, that would have been those who were part of the dispersion of the diaspora. But it's talking about the Gentiles coming into the church, being brought together. Now, it's been suggested that this is the real trial of Jesus Christ, that this is where the decision was made concerning what they were going to do with Jesus. At that other time that they gathered together in the middle of the night, it wasn't really a trial, that the decision had already been made here. The problem is, is that there they weren't following the rules, and here they weren't following the rules either. Jewish law required that in any case where there was a verdict of guilty that was potentially capital, that the verdict could not be rendered on the same day as the evidence. The idea being is the people who needed to make the decision needed to be given the evidence and have a time to think about the evidence before they rendered the guilty verdict. That protocol wasn't followed here. They rendered the verdict on the same day. And secondly, that that verdict could not be given without the presence of the defendant, and Jesus wasn't there. And so again, they weren't following the rules. And from that day on, they planned to kill him. Trial was a mockery. The trial that happened that involved Pilate and Herod, that was a mockery as well. Jesus was assassinated because, as Pilate observed, the chief priests, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees had handed Jesus over to him out of jealousy. And Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews. He went away from there to the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. And then verse 55 talks about the Passover and the conversation that was taking place. That was only a few days away. Some say if you're a new Christian, well, read the book of John first. It's a great way to understand what it means to be a follower of Christ. 
Pastor Leighton Sheely, Senior Pastor at Church of the Highlands in San Bruno, has been taking us through the book of John for a number of weeks now, and we'll continue for several weeks more. If you've missed any of the past broadcasts, just check them out on the website at highlands.us. Click on the Messages link there on the homepage. This is an outreach ministry of Church of the Highlands and supported in part by the congregation. The balance of the costs for putting this program on the air each day, Monday through Friday, are covered by listeners just like yourself. If you'd like to join our financial team, you can give safely on a regular basis or just one time at highlands.us and share with us the fact that you've tuned in. That would be a great encouragement for us. I'm Mike Trout. Thanks for joining us today. Come back on Tuesday when we'll once again open the Word of God to the book of John and study at this same time, verse by verse.